Hi, welcome to another Build a Healthier Life podcast, and I am your host, Kevin Mullen. We are here to help our listeners learn from my experience of dealing with my own personal health journey with multiple chemical sensitivity, and from our guests' knowledge to help you become more aware of the hazards that lurk inside of our homes through the materials that we use in the construction of our homes, understanding the risks with the beauty and cleaning products that we use in our everyday lives, and how they can affect your health and the risks of, to your body as well as from some of the food that we consume. I'm joined here today by Dakota Cohen, one of the co-owners of Cohen Farms, a 250-acre award-winning permaculture farm located just east of Pinocchio, Alberta, Canada. Dakota is a passionate steward of their farmland and had been nominated as one of the most influential environmentalists under 25 in 2015. He is one of Canada's youngest and innovative pioneering permaculture farmers. He is taking this knowledge and is co-authoring a book, Building Your Permaculture Property, a five-step process to design and develop land, as well in addition to their own on-site education options at the farm through private tours or group sessions about how they turn the Cohen Farm into this integrative concept. Dakota is also an educator with Verge Permaculture. He has a permaculture design certificate from the Permaculture Research Institute. He also has a holistic management certificate certificate and a red seal certificate for carpentry. Dakota, welcome to build a healthier life. Thanks for having me on Kevin. Yeah. So just, uh, you know, I've been to your farm for, uh, for one of the group tours with my son who was into permaculture. Um, and, uh, and you know, my, my understanding of your farm is that it had been a regenerative farm since 1988 and, uh, long before that was either trendy or in the vocabulary or even in conversations about farming at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about how you went from an industrial farm to a regenerative farm? Yeah, so th- that that original transition actually happened before I was even born. Uh, I was born in 1992. And uh, and so the, the transition that my parents began in, in 1988, as, as you mentioned, was, was from like a standard kind of industrial farm, you know, pigs in barns, cattle in feedlots, you know, fertilizer and herbicides on the crops. Uh, at that time, we were still doing a lot of tillage uh, as well, and uh, we kind of just—they were just transitioning into you know high high chemical synthetic uh, no-till farming. But in in I think it was 1987, uh, my um, uh, my mom got uh, had kind of a uh, a scare when she was taking uh, lunch to my dad out in the field. And he was spraying at the time on a tractor. And, um, and by the time she got from the truck to the tractor where he had, you know, he had shut the sprayer off and she had walked out to give him his lunch in the tractor, she started to feel kind of lightheaded and, and wasn't feeling great. And, uh, and that was kind of the, the, the that, was, that was really the tipping point for, for my parents. Uh, like my mom was kind of a hippie. She was, you know, spent a lot of time in BC growing up. And, and so she'd always been kind of aware of this. My dad was a farm boy. He grew up literally just up the road. But when my mom had that personal experience, suddenly, you know, all those questions that she had in the back of her mind of, wait, like these things that we're spraying on our food and giving to our animals have skulls and crossbones on them. Why are we doing this? When she had that personal experience, that was the point when they realized that there's there's something wrong with this. Even though there wasn't a ton of research to back it up at that point, they quit cold turkey, uh, and in 1988 they they were off 
fertilizers, herbicides, uh, and, uh, and antibiotics for our animals and everything like that. And we, we haven't looked back since. And so when, when, I, when I was, was born onto the farm in, in 92, uh, I just, it was, you know, I was like a fish in water. I didn't really know what it was uh, until I left the farm uh, when I was getting my journeyman ticket. And I actually had kind of my own, uh, you know, personal health crisis that brought me back to the farm and got me interested in kind of continuing on my parents' legacy and, and trying to uh, take it to the next level because, you know, the organics isn't a, isn't a perfect system and, and growing up on, on, a, on, on an organic farm, you know, there, there, we still had issues with, you know, soil health and, uh, and profitability and things like that. So that's when I started researching, you know, alternative, you know, regenerative agricultural principles and things like that. And just randomly came across stuff like, you know, permaculture, holistic management, uh, things like that. And since 2012, I've been on the farm full time. And so kind of just maybe tell people a little bit about, I guess, your role on the farm. Like what is, you know, I mean, most people obviously live in the city. They're probably going to listen to this podcast and they probably have no idea what that means, uh, to be on the farm and work on the farm. Yeah. So, I mean, we actually have a, a pretty, uh, you know, you know, picturesque version of like what, what, when most people think of a farm, that's what our farm is. It's, you know, it's what farms were a hundred years ago versus what most farms are today. They're factories. Uh, they're, they're factories that some of them happen to be outside if, if they're growing, you know, plants in, in fields, but, if, you, if they're, you know, animals in confinement operations, they are literally, you know, factories where the animals are the cogs and, and, uh, and, and the machines inside these buildings versus, you know, our farm animals are outside, you know, they're, they're free ranging uh, and, you know, there's green grass everywhere. You just go to our website and, and you can, you can see all the, the videos and stuff like that, but it's, like, you know, if you think of any, you know, video you've ever seen of, or a movie of, you've ever seen of a farm, that's, that's kind of what it is. It's just, you know, walking around tending animals, looking after crops. Uh, we do obviously have machinery and things like that, but it's, it's pretty minimal, the, the amount of machinery that we use. Most of it's just, uh, you know, a little bit of appropriate technology and, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of thinking and, and planning. Yeah, I mean, most people think of, the videos that we see are the combines going down the field on a, you know, uh, multiple combines going down the field at the same time in industrialized uh, yeah. farming and complex. Uh, that's not what, what you guys have at all. No. Uh, right. So. No, like our, our, our combines are cattle and, and uh, you know, the, the, you know, most technological thing we have on the farm is probably our electric fencer that allows us to, to move, you know, our, 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 you know, 30 head of cattle, uh, once a day across the farm and we just it sends a little bit of voltage through a, a thin piece of wire <laughs> like what we do have tractors and stuff like that but they're they're toys compared to the you know million dollar 400 horsepower combines and and quad track tractors that uh that these big guys are using oh. yeah no so what how do you like do you think there's uh, still a stigma i guess for your type of farm and, and, and how you operate it relative to the rest of the market, or is that, or is, is the opinion in the farming industry changing and, and refocusing onto more like what you're doing or organic farming? What, what's your thoughts on that? So the, uh, you know, thanks to the, uh, very persistent propaganda from, 
you know, big ag uh, industries, the, 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 I think there still is a lot of stigma around small farms and how, you know, they're, they're not profitable, they're not productive enough, they can't feed the world, they're just kind of, you know, they're hobby type stuff. However, uh, the, that's just like the, the propaganda that's coming out from these industries that sell the, the inputs that all these farmers depend upon. The farmers themselves secretly, when you get them alone or, you know, a couple beers in them, <laughs> they, they all, you know, ask, how's it going? You know, it's, I'm, I remember when I used to do that when I was a kid or uh, the, the, the farmers, they, they know that, that, you know, the emperor has no clothes, but they're, um, you know, a lot of them are in, in a huge amount of debt and, uh, uh, you know, they're, they really, they can't get out without losing everything. And so they're, they kind of, they, they rely on the propaganda to just kind of keep their spirits up. But um, yeah, th- there's some massive, massive holes in the industrial agricultural complex right now. And uh, um, yeah, sadly, uh, uh, the farmers see it, but they, they kind of have to keep pretending like they don't. Is organic farming changing in, in the market in terms of is is even the industrialized complex, you know, because people are asking for more organic products, they're asking for more non-GMO. Are they changing a bit to actually drive that towards the farmers to maybe, you know, maybe look at that as an option? They are for sure. I, I, I believe the, like the organic uh, sector is, is growing uh, quite rapidly uh, worldwide. However, sadly, the, the standard of organics is also diminishing uh, I don't, I wouldn't say quite as rapidly, but uh, like, for example, we are no longer certified uh, anymore be- because the, like, <laughs> the, the, the bar is so low to become certified that uh, it's, it, it, it doesn't even like, for example, it's, it's in, I believe in the United States now you can use Roundup on a certified organic farm so long as it's not on the crop that you're using. So like if you're in a greenhouse and you were to spray Roundup on weeds, like on the ground next to your tomatoes, that's certified organic. As long as the Roundup doesn't, you know, drift onto, like, it's, it's really quite, uh, quite silly. And so my, my personal belief is that um, organic certification is a means to an end. And the end in my goal is, a, is, is local bioregional food systems where consumers are, you know, one or two steps, uh, if that removed from the, the farmer that produced the food. So that certification becomes redundant because you know the person or, you know, a, you're a friend of a friend of the farm who grows it. And you don't need to have a third party saying, you should trust this person. They're not a criminal because you know them, they're part of your community. And, and, if, and if that person, you know, is a cheater, they're going to be found out. And, and, and we have a much more, um, you know, local system that, that's, that's easier to control because right now organics is a massive brand that it has been bought or, or in the, is in the process of being bought by uh, big industry. And, and very soon the things like, you know, uh, already, you know, genetic, genetic modification um, uh, with certain technology like CRISPR, they're talking about, well, that's not, that's so precise, it should be considered organic or, you know, the use of Roundup or you can use Ivermectin, which is an antiparasitical on livestock, as long as you, you know, as long as you do a few little things with your animals, um, you know, it's okay. And, and every year it gets, it gets worse and worse and worse. So, um, 
that's that's my thought is that it's it's a it's it's kind of the lesser of two evils right now uh but and, and it's it'll be a useful tool to help us transition back to what i think is absolutely essential was which is that local bioregional uh food system so is that you know, i mean most people um would probably think of farm to table is what they would have heard when they've gone to a restaurant or something. So that's really what you're talking about is, is that it's right from the farm to the personal table rather than to a restaurant table. Well, I mean, not, not necessarily. I think, I think restaurants could, could be part of that too. It's just that, you know, the, the, the chef would have a personal relationship with the farmer and, uh, and, and you could still, we could still have grocery stores and things like that. It's just that, um, you know, like there's just, there's local, there's, there's a community around it. And, uh, um, and then, like, like I said, all, all these all these third party certifications are are not necessary because you can go and tour the farm. You can see it yourself. And, and consumers are educated to the point where where they know whether or not a farmer is is full of it or not, um, because, like, I mean, th- there's 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 all kinds of research. Uh, I can't remember what, what the number was, but uh, the this year or last year in the United States, there was a, a organic grain farmer who sold. I think it was like hundreds of millions of dollars worth of non-organic grain into the organic market because he was just using his, his kind of farm label to, you know, he was, he was just buying cheap grain, industrial grain off of, you know, non-organic farmers and then running it through his, his books and then selling it onto the organic market and, and doubling or tripling the price. So even, even with these certifications in place, like it's, it's not gonna, it's, it's not gonna work. The, um, I, I personally think these 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 small scale systems are uh, where when there are cheaters, they're they're small players in the game, and they can be found out quickly, and um, <laughs> and consequences can be dealt out appropriately. Yeah. So I, I see in the construction industry, you know, there's so many certifications, uh, and it becomes very confusing. Yeah. Becomes um, burdensome even for someone that's in the industry, let alone somebody that's not in the industry. So how so how does the consumer really kind of, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, dealing with a smaller farmer like that, but most people, you know, can't eat like that every day. Um, so how do they, how do they navigate that at the grocery store, for, for example, even? Yeah. And I mean, this, this is the, like another downside to the certification is, is there's, uh, there's all kinds of schemes out there. Like there's, you know, there's natural, there's free range, there's, cage free there's you know soy free there's there's organic now they're talking about doing a regenerative uh, organic uh, or a regenerative certification which has three standards there's gold silver and bronze um, and like they're just adding all these certifications onto it and and I, I personally think it's it's uh, it's not going to help the farmers it's not going to help the consumers it's just going to further muddy the waters and it's it's just I think a lot of marketing. Um, so my, 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 my hope is that, that these, uh, when, when we can reach kind of a, a scale of, of a large enough efficiency or um, uh, when, when, when there's enough small farmers, you know, back in these communities, the, 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 or said another way, if our governments stop subsidizing industrial food, making it seem cheaper than, you know, the food that farms like our sell, um, consumers will, it'll be easier to afford our food, uh, on, on these small farms. And, and then, and then, you know, farmers will be incentivized to transition to this, this kind of, uh, you know, small scale regenerative agriculture. And, and this is, this isn't a, a new idea. Like the, I believe it was, um, 
uh, I think it was the United Nations came out with a re with a report saying uh, you know that, that small farms were essential you know to uh, to the future of agriculture and and uh, I mean just doing the math on on the the embodied energy and the transportation costs of food is you know there's there's ten calories of energy in every calorie of food we're eating right now and so you just play those numbers out long enough and it, it's it's not a it's not a winnable you know, future that we're, we're looking at, like eventually we, we have to, to do a full cost accounting of, of the way we're, we're eating. So is there a resurgence in younger people getting into farming because they see a better life uh, in that regard and doing this type of regenerative farming rather than industrialized farming? And, and is, is there a trend for that? Uh, absolutely. I, I think that there, there's a massive demand or a, a massive, um, uh, interest in in uh, young people and and even you know like, like I, I think it's more like middle-aged kind of you know families you know couples that have you know a couple kids that that they're sick of the rat race in the city and they want to give their you know kids kind of the life that they had when they were growing up I think is is the main demographic there's there's a massive interest in that the the and the consumer demand is is just lagging slightly behind um you know, when my parents made the transition to organics in 1988, like they, they just could not sell anything. Like it was, it was really tough to, uh, like the, the, it was a volume game it was the only way you could compete. And, and you were selling through, you know, large wholesalers. Uh, there was, there was almost no direct market interest at that, that time. And, and every year it's just, it's increased a little bit. And now I think we're we're just kind of getting into the exponential curve and like so for example like this year is it was the like we we always sell out our stuff um, and it's been easier every year but uh, you know this year we, we were sold out kind of before the the you know COVID kind of lockdown stuff started to happen but the every every regenerative farmer I know in Alberta right now is sold out and that's never happened like. Uh, it's, it's crazy. There, there is such a massive demand. I, I had to take my, my phone number off my website because I was getting so many calls for people interested in this stuff. And uh, so I really do think that the, um, that when consumer demand uh, um, is, well, it's, it's, it's starting to break the kind of supply right now. And when that happens, there's going to be a flood of, of new farmers coming back to the, to the land. And we're going to see for the first time, since the 1930s, farming the the number of farmers uh, actually increase versus in the 1930s, 30% of the population were farmers in Canada. It's less than uh, two or three percent now, and uh, it's just not a it's not a good <laughs> situation to be in. Yeah, well, I mean it. I mean, uh, since uh, this has gone on, um, you know, people have had more time to be at home than probably they ever have because we're used to traveling or going to functions or life has got in the way of uh, maybe uh, healthier food choices and, and, and maybe education in regards to this. So that that's hopefully a, an inspiration to, to that. And maybe they watched uh, the big little farm or something on uh, Netflix and uh, saw how that, uh, you know, uh, you could turn a piece of ground into something pretty special. Uh, unfortunately we live in, in Alberta and uh, we maybe can't grow as much as they could. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've watched that show. Yeah, I've, I've seen it. And, and like we, we certainly can't grow, you know, the exact things that they can grow, but we can grow like, for example, on our farm, we have over nine different kinds of berries 
that we grow and, and, and we sell as a, as kind of a, a, a berry medley that's, you know, frozen in these bags. And I mean, you know, a couple of the berries folks would, would recognize, but most of them they've never even heard of. Like we can grow an incredible diversity of things. They're just, it's just different than the, you know, the peaches and, and pears and, and plums and stuff that you can grow in, in California, which is, that's part of what I think these, this, this bioregional food system is, is going to, is going to be people getting used to like, what, what, what can our area, you know, what's the terroir of our area? What, what, what grows really well here and, and eating more seasonally as well as locally. Yeah. So that, so like I said, my son's really into permaculture and, you know, so he's brought out all the books here for me, uh, you know, for this uh, interview. And, and one of them was uh, Bill Mollison, uh, permaculture. He called him permaculture God. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, the the founder, one of the co-founders. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, so he, uh, you know, but he's, uh, you know, showing uh, a, a different area and zone type, uh, type of uh, permaculture. And then, you know, he talked about Ben Falk, uh, you know, his resilient farm and, and, uh, you know, Toby Hemingway. Uh, um, but, you know, so I guess that's maybe, is that why you've kind of focused on writing your book here with the, uh, the couple from Verge uh, to kind of, I guess, maybe give a little bit more focus to our regional basis of that permaculture? Is that, is that one of the reasons or? Uh, the, I mean, more so the, our book is kind of like, uh, it's an advanced uh, kind of process oriented book uh, versus a lot of the other books that are out there, which are, 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 were very important and very useful. were more kind of practice based, you know, you know, giving examples from, you know, uh, case studies of particular, you know, farms uh, versus ours is, is, is a, it's a, it's a five-step process that kind of pulls all these different principles together and, and orients them in a way that you can, you can design a property anywhere in the world. And so the, the book does, you know, use our farm as a, as a case study um, to illustrate that process, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite unique uh, in relation to those, those other books. However, a, a lot of the other education stuff that we do does focus on we, what we call cold climate permaculture because, you know, permaculture originated uh, out of, you know, Australia and it's been more widely adopted in kind of the tropics and subtropics. And so, you know, a lot of the stuff are like things like, you know, uh, banana circles and, you know, chinampas that, that. You can't uh, have that. <laughs> uh, no. And, and so there, there are some examples in, in, in those, those texts for cold climates, but for them, cold climates is like, you know, you get frost, you get, you know, frost a couple of days of the year, not, you know, you get minus 40 for two weeks <laughs> yeah. and, you know, three feet of snow. It's, it is quite different. So uh, I do focus uh, a lot of that on other stuff, but the the book that's coming out in April will be um, uh, much more of a, of a kind of a process oriented yeah. book. So what what kind of just in a general format, like what are those five steps maybe if, if they could be simplified down without, you know, <laughs> sure. if, if that's even possible, I don't even know. So that's a question, it, I guess. Sure. So the, the um, what we found as like I've taken like over six permaculture design courses, which is that's kind of like the, the standard, um, you know, course for uh, for permaculture. It's it consists of a minimum of, of seventy two hours of content that covers you know everything from you know food to energy to water to shelter to uh, you know political to money systems, 
uh, you know, all that stuff, all this, this integrated uh, format with, with lots of examples and, and, and principles and, and, you know, design methodologies and things like that. Uh, and there's just, there's so much information <clears throat> that is, uh, uh, is kind of passed on in those, in those courses that it's, it's really quite overwhelming. Uh, it's, it's all fantastic information and it's, it's necessary to kind of help people to almost, you know, take the, take the red pill to, uh, uh, you, know, you know, kind of deprogram from all, you know, a lot of the, the, the myths or, or, um, uh, you know, misconceptions that people have about all those different systems. And, and so the, our process was really oriented. It's like, after people take those courses and they try to actually put this stuff into practice, there's like five struggles that they typically encounter and they, they typically encounter them in, in sequentially. And then they kind of go in a loop and, and those five struggles are um, uh, like basically what should I do? Uh, 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 where do I find, how do I connect? <clears throat> um, uh, where do I start? And when does it end? <laughs> and <laughs> basically, it basically just loops around in these. Uh, so the, our our five step process that we've developed after you know struggling with these things for for years ourselves, and working with clients uh, all across Canada, and we've we've had students all over the world. Um, that our our five step process has been basically starting out with you know clarifying your vision, values, and resources. It's all about you know uh, goal setting and uh, and and doing an inventory of of what it is you have, uh, and then we go into a really uh, you know really uh, um, deliberate and detailed di- diagnosis process because most people think well per- the permaculture design and so they, they want to get right to the design part, but the what we found is is that the diagnosis is where you know, 80% of the, the work needs to be done. And when you do a good diagnosis, the design just kind of emerges. <clears throat> like design is, is kind of what humans do. It's like, uh, you know, uh, teaching a human how to design is like teaching a, a bird how to fly. It's just, it's, it's unnecessary. But if, if, you, if you give a human, you know, the ability to, to diagnose and kind of gather information and organize it, uh, in, in a particular way, in the same way, if you give a bird you know, enough space, they just, they just connect dots and they, they start doing this, this design work. So the, the f- first step is clarify your vision, buys and resources. The second step is diagnose those resources for strengths, weakness, opportunities, and threats in relation to your vision and values. The third step is to design your resources to meet your vision without sacrificing your values. And then the fourth step is to uh, implement the, uh, the, the, the best design that addresses your most, uh, your weakest resource. And then the fifth step is all about monitoring for kind of benchmarks uh, for success. And, and those five steps help people to kind of overcome these, the five most common struggles that folks have with permaculture. And, um, and so it's, it's, it's a completely different uh, book to permaculture. It's, it's more about how to think and, uh, you know, with, in terms of, you know, strategy and tools, you know, workflows, um, you know, templates and things like that. But it's, 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 you know, at the end of every chapter in the book, there's, you know, three or four practices where it's like, do this, do this, do this. And then, okay, now go to the next step in the, in the process. And then at the end of that, then do this, then do this, then do this. And at the end of it, you've, you've kind of, you know, you, you've got this, this, 
you know, design for a property, you've got a strategy for an implement, you've got a process for making decisions, you've got a, a, a you know, set of goals that helps make sure that you and your decision-making partners are on the same page. And you've got some idea of how you can, uh, you know, make sure you're not going off the rails as you start to, you know, build this, this, this you know, permaculture property. And, and then the whole thing just repeats again. And you, you just keep, you know, developing the, the permaculture property of your dreams. That sounds, uh, sounds really interesting. And, and, you know, my, like I said, uh, you know, my son, he said, you know, dad, we got to put some swales in, uh, in our property out in the country. And so I said, okay, let's do that. And, and, uh, you know, I said, you know, it didn't really work that well. I said, we never really captured the water. We thought he goes, well, that's your fault for listening to a 15 year old at the time. <laughs> so, so I thought, so we yeah. might have to repurpose where we've put them and, and uh, try and do that. But you know, that's, you know, we've tried and, you know, um, we'd, yeah. we'd be dead broke farmers already if we were um, trying to make a living from it, but uh, we've tried some of those things. So it's kind of, even on my own property, uh, you know, we run, uh, you know, at least the land to some cattle farmers and, uh, and, and this year we just made them, it's on a section of land and we just made them move the prop, you know, around the property more often. So before they used to just leave them there and then maybe one day they'd remember about the cow and, and then they'd move them to the next portion of the field. But by that point they've kind of overgrazed or whatever. So we moved them a little bit more to see what it meant for the grass this year. And uh, we moved them uh, every seven days to a different quarter essentially. And it made such a difference to the property. Um, You know, so certainly not the daily move that the, the Buffalo had, but it was certainly more than, uh, you know, what the average uh, farmer does with the moving of their, uh, their cattle. So it definitely made a difference for us. So, um, you know, you talk about this regenerative, does it make the land more resilient, I guess, at the end of the day, is it, is it help, has it made, you know, your time on the farm? Can you see the difference in the farm? Oh, for sure. Like, uh, so I, I mean, in, in, uh, we've taken our worst hay field, uh, well, I'll put this into context. So uh, w- my parents have sold hay off of our farm. This is like the one enterprise that, that actually paid the bills and, you know, and, you know, kept me in clothes, <laughs> uh, growing up was, was selling hay off of the farm. And, uh, and so we used to harvest, you know, uh, about, it'd be like, you know, five to 10,000 pounds of biomass per acre uh, from, from hay. And then we would sell that off the farm. And we did that for, you know, 20, 25 years. And, and, you know, looking back at our records, we could see there was a steady decline in production. And because we were, we're organic, we weren't adding in, uh, uh, you know, synthetic fertilizers and things like that. Uh, we were, uh, we were, um, uh, uh, you know, we, we had livestock and things like that, but we weren't doing rotational grazing or things like that because we didn't we didn't realize it. So we were effectively mining our property from nutrients because we were we were pulling those minerals and and organic matter out of the soil via the plant matter, and we were shipping it off the farm. And it got to the point where you know our five to ten ten thousand pound per acre crop uh, was almost nothing. Uh, you know, down to the point where it was, you know, like a thousand pounds per acre. And, and since we've discovered, you know, regenerative agriculture, things like, you know, uh, 
uh, rotational grazing, uh, you know, adding compost onto our fields, you know, increasing the diversity of, of our hay fields from, you know, three species to, you know, 15 or, or more. Uh, we've had, you know, fields that were producing almost nothing in just a few years come back to uh, their historic levels of, of you know, five to 10,000 pounds of, of productivity per acre. And, uh, and we're just kind of getting started uh, as, as part of that. We've seen, uh, you know, we've seen springs develop on our property that uh, haven't uh, existed for, you know, a hundred years. We've seen species of, you know, birds and mammals that, you know, used to be here a hundred years ago have come back within a few years of, of management shifts. Like, you know, building wetlands brings muskrats in within days. You know, establishing, you know, tree belts and leaving grass standing tall brings in things like meadowlarks and grouse that haven't, hadn't been seen for, for decades. Uh, so we are absolutely seeing that, you know, the, the result of our, uh, of our little actions, uh, uh, not just doing kind of less bad, but actually, you know, increasing the, the health of our land, increasing the, the productivity of our land, increasing the health of our animals. We've had the nutrient density of our food tested, uh, and and you know it's it's blown you know other uh, other producers out of the water, uh, you know compared to the stuff you get at the grocery store. So that there's there's no doubt in my mind that uh, um, that regenerative agriculture uh, it can actually help restore ecosystems. It, it's not about just sustaining or conserving. It's we can actually rebuild what's been lost. So is that diversity of the plant the biggest thing that's made the difference, I guess, on the on the field that's created that? Like you said, you you know, you've planted a number of different hay species or whatever. That diversity has brought connectivity to the property and then subsequently is helping it regenerate and and bring back that 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 energy back into the into the ground. Well, I mean, that's certainly part of it. I think the, the, the biggest thing for our particular context was just the, the lack of, of uh, nutrients in the soil. And so for us, it was the, it was the compost and the rotational grazing in, 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 in a lesser extent, the, the plants and things like that. But um, like that's the thing is like within any, any you know, ecosystem, there's always going to be a, you know, a limiting resource. And, and no matter how good everything else is, you're always going to be limited by that that particular factor, and so now that we've we're addressing kind of our our soil health issue, um, you know we're excited to see what the next threshold is going to be, and because we're doing a lot of other things too, like you know water management. Uh, you know we've got swales on our property and dams, and and uh, you know we're doing flood irrigation and things like that. And we've also seen, you know, it, it, for example, uh, was it three or four years ago in our uh, our county in the spring. Uh, they, they almost declared a state of emergency from uh, the worst flooding in decades. We had roads wash out all over the county because there, there was so much snow and, and so much runoff that the culprits couldn't handle it. And, you know, people were tr stranded in their homes and things like that. Uh, and so we went from state of emergency from flooding to a few months later, they almost declared a state of emergency from drought. And on that time on our farm, uh, you know, because of the water management that we had done, we didn't even notice the spring runoff. Like it was no different than any other year because all of our, our wetlands and our swales and our dams, uh, they just absorbed all that shock and they slowed it down and spread it out and infiltrated into the ground. 
And we had, you know, a creek that was running for months into the drought that didn't exist before we started doing all this stuff. And, uh, and then, you know, fast forward into the drought and, you know, the, the areas around those, those swales and, and wetlands and things like that, uh, they were some of the only areas in our farm that, that had any grass to speak of uh, and in, in, in the countryside. Hmm. So just, I, I know on, on, the, on the farm, I think you, know, you have pigs, you have uh, cows, you have chickens, um, do you have other, what other animals might you have there? Uh, we've, we've got dairy cows uh, and uh, we used to have horses. Uh, we've had sheep in the past. Um, but uh, yeah, for the most part, it's just the, the chickens, the pigs, the beef cows yeah. and the dairy cows. And so I know that you were fairly active and, and uh, in terms of, I guess, you know, my, the term would be harvesting animals on the, on the farm. And for a while that wasn't, you know, allowed and I guess uh now that's changed I guess so and and maybe you can just talk about what that meant to to you as the as a farm farmer and what that meant to the animals on the farm yeah absolutely so uh when when I um when I came back to the farm in 2012 uh one of the things that I had done a lot of research in was direct marketing uh which is the idea of you know cutting out these kind of middlemen or you know, stopping to sell this these to you know to wholesalers, and and doing the marketing ourselves so that we could capture you know some of the the majority of the value in in that in that production chain, but it it also made us more the the bigger reason why we were actually interested in in direct marketing was um, we wanted to not be we wanted to have more than one customer because in the past we had had you know, we, we'd had, you know, one or two customers that would buy everything. And even though we had contracts and things like that, they would just say, no, oh, sorry, we don't need your stuff. Or we found it somewhere cheaper and, you know, take us, try to take us to court. And they would just walk away from, you know, a you know, hundred thousand dollar contract or whatever, and we'd be screwed. So the, with, with the direct marketing came, you know, this trying to understand what, what our customers want and, and, and things like that. And, and trying to, you know, as opposed to just shipping all of our cows to, you know, the auction mart, we know how to take them to the butchers ourselves and, and, you know, do all that, that whole, that whole process. And, and so growing up, I had, we had always butchered our own meat on farm for our, our own home consumption. And, and, you know, we just, all the other meat was just, you know, shift off, off to market, like, like most other farmers did. But when we started to sell direct market to customers and we started to get feedback from customers, they would say things like, you know, like the, you know, oh, the meat was really good this year, except for, you know, uh, you know, th there's just, you know, some of the roasts were really bad or, you know, the, like the quality was just all over the map. And, uh, and then, you know, for the first time ever, you know, we started to eat meat that was, was from, you know, the, the butchers that, that we were, our customers were using. And we could notice a big difference in the quality from the, the, the meat that, um, you know, that versus what we were doing ourselves and, and what was being done at these, these kind of, uh, you know, provincially inspected abattoirs where the animals were being shipped to, killed, and then processed and, and then delivered to customers. And so as a result of that, and also just seeing that, you know, the visible stress of the, the shipping and stuff on our animals, uh, I started to do research into, you know, on-farm harvesting and, and low stress, you know, livestock management systems. 
And it turns out there's a lot of really good research. Uh, Temple Grandin uh, uh, is, is a very well-known uh, researcher in, in this respect. She's a, a woman from the United States who um, uh, has just done phenomenal research uh, showing how uh, stress on animals uh, contributes to uh, actually uh, like physiological changes in the meat because you know there's there's adrenaline, uh, there's you know stress hormones. It, it it changes the color, the texture, the nutrient profile of the meat. Uh, you know any hunter knows that if you shoot a deer and it's a clean shot and the animal goes down and is you know killed instantly, the meat is very good. With that same deer, if you if you wound it and it runs for half a mile before it drops from exhaustion, you know they they call it you know sausage meat because it's it's inedible because it will it will taste so rank because of the adrenaline and, and that animal system you you can only eat, eat it if you just slather it with with herbs and spices and uh you know probably some msg or something <laughs> uh and so the you know our domestic animals are the same way it's just they've they've been bred to not have as strong of a of a stress response but the changes are still there and so you know, it was, it was partly out of, um, out of a desire to, um, you know, to, to, uh, out of ethics, it's just like these animals uh, have the ability to, to, to suffer. And so, you know, it's our responsibility as farmers to make sure that they, uh, they suffer as little as possible or ideally none at all. And but there's also the fact that if, if they don't suffer the meat, that, the nourishment that they provide to us is better for us. Uh, it's more nutrient dense. Uh, doesn't have, you know, stress hormones that could contribute to, you know, all the other health illnesses that we're, we're seeing right now. Um, and then there was, you know, just because of the, the current meat industry, there's, there's a lot of, of um, again, this is, it's funny, the, the, the current meat industry is, is very regulated, you know, there's lots of inspectors and things like that. But we've had butchers lose entire animals. We've had customers get meat that wasn't from our animals, like not even from the same species. Like you take a beef in and you might get some deer back <laughs> um, and stuff Oops. like that. And so like, it was a lot of this stuff, but, but, you know, major the, the majority of it was the, the, the animal humaneness um, and the, the nutrient density aspect of it. And, and, and the other piece too was, was it really ticked me off is we would take in, you know, a, a thousand pound animal, we'd get 500 pounds of meat back and then a bill for, uh, you know, 500 pounds worth of worth of waste dumpage fees, because the head, the stomach, the the you know the skull, uh, any of the 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 you know non-consumable parts of the animal had to be they were waste products. Disposed. Yeah, and so so on-farm harvesting solves every single one of those problems. There's zero stress for the animals because they can be you know harvested on the farm in an environment that there's, that there's no stress. They literally, they, they go to eat one morning and, you know, they, they get shot and they go down and there's, there's literally zero suffering The you know, all of the, the, the waste products from the animal can be composted on farm to return to the nutrient cycle of the farm. Uh, we're now dealing with smaller butchers who are, again, they're, 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 there's more of a personal relationship with, with them. They don't have the massive volume of meat going through their shop because they've got to pay for the overhead of, of this abattoir that costs $2 million. Uh, and, uh, and of course, you know, the, the nutrient density of the, the meat increases. And so we were, we developed this, this system because it was, it was a few years ago, it was illegal to do this in Alberta. It was legal in other places, but it was illegal in Alberta. And so we were doing it 
illegally through a, a herd share, kind of we found a loophole basically that it's perfectly legal for farmers to kill their own animals on farm and eat them. And so we thought, well, what if we make our consumers producers, we sell them a live animal, we rent them land and we harvest their animal on their land for them. And it's all you know done by the book. Anyways, we did that for a few years. It was fantastic. We finally got uh, somebody uh, squealed on us uh, or the, you know, they, they just, you know, hacked into our website or something like that, which uh, there's, there's <laughs> a very strong uh, police force that's, uh, uh, you know, keeping these kind of meat and milk monopolies in, in, uh, in business right now. Uh, and so we, we were, uh, we were threatened with a year in prison or a $10,000 fine if we didn't cease and desist. <clears throat> and as a result of that, we spent about two years, myself and a few other producers, educating uh, other consumers. We had a couple letter writing campaigns. And it was as a result of, it was like three or four farms. We basically had the law changed in Alberta this year. And now uh, like this fall, we're doing what we were doing uh, two years ago. And it's all, it's all by the books now. That's great. And, and uh, change comes from uh, passionate people uh, working uh, towards a mission. And obviously you got there. So that's, uh, yeah. that's, Great to hear. So I, I always I have these other questions and you're kind of a young guy. So it's a little bit difficult to pull you back to a younger age. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually, so I'm going to say, what would you tell your 50 year old self that will help you live a healthier life in the future? What would I tell my 50 year old self? Uh, um, I mean, to be honest, I think it would just be just keep doing what I'm doing and, and don't, don't give up. Like I, I, I live a, uh, just like a almost perfect life right now. Like I have, you know, live on an organic farm. I've got eat the best food in the world. Most of it's stuff that we grow ourselves. Um, uh, the, the, the really only downside is that we live kind of in the heartland of industrial agriculture and we're surrounded by, you know, you know, nine to 10 sprays of, of every chemical you can imagine uh, during the summertime. And so, you know, maybe that's something that, and I am working on that consciously is trying to, to um, get more people on the lands so that we can, we can push that stuff out. But uh, yeah, I think it would just be keep, keep doing what I'm doing and don't, uh, <laughs> don't, don't give up. <clears throat> you know, I, I we, uh, somehow we have to manage the chemicals that we put onto our land uh, so that we can, you know, then we also need to manage the chemicals that we put on our bodies and, and that we surround our, you know, cleaning our houses and stuff like that. And then we need to actually, you know, eliminate as many chemicals and toxins as we can from the houses that we build. That's kind of our mission as well. So, you know, yeah. I think it's, it's uh, um, I don't think until people hear your story and my story and other stories uh, you know, they, they're not even aware of, of the, the challenges that, uh, that might be out there. And so, um, so I, the other thing, uh, so, you know, people have listened to this podcast now and, and they've heard about your farm and, you know, regenerative farming. Um, but they don't own a farm, they don't own a farm and they're probably never going to own a farm, but so, but what do you think they can do? Like as individuals that, you know, that live in a city or, you know, maybe have a friend that has a little bit of land somewhere, but what, you know, what, how, what can they do? Yeah. So the, the, the first thing that I, I tell everybody is, is just grow a garden, no matter if, even if it's just, you know, a, a tray full of, of, uh, you know, microgreens that there's no soil involved. 
that's like the little or like, you know, a couple pots of, of herbs in your, in your windowsill to, you know, uh, boxes on your balcony in a, in a, in an apartment. I know one of my, uh, one of my teachers, when she lived in an apartment uh, and she didn't have any land, she would go out and, and scrape the, you know, that the really nice fluffy black dirt from like mole hills. Yeah. Yeah. She would, she would gather that into, into Rubbermaid tubs because she said it was the best potting soil and she would grow gardens on her, on her balcony in a, you know, a, a 10 story building. Um, and just w- whatever you can do, just participate in the cycle of life. Uh, because it, it is a, uh, it is a life-changing experience to do that. And you will just have, uh, it's, it's, it's for me has been the most you know, meaningful activity of, of my life, uh, whether that's, you know, for, for plants or, or animals, but like planting a seed, watching it grow and mature and consuming that, that, um, that plant. And, and ideally, you know, you have some ability to, you know, recycle your own waste and, and, uh, you know, complete the, the cycle as well. Uh, but that, that's a minimum and, and everybody can do that. No matter, no matter where you live is just garden. Uh, p- participate in the in the ecosystem that sustains you and uh, and and get a feel for that, uh, and then you know from from there you know going on up is is uh, I think it's the, the next biggest thing is just is educating yourself uh, whether again you're you have no land or you've got you know thousands of acres there is there is there's no excuse now like when my parents made the transition in 1988 there was no internet. Uh, there was uh, one other producer in our county who was organic, apart from them. Uh, when they when they took a step back from from that particular paradigm, they lost all their friends and their family. Uh, there was no social media. There was uh, you know, there was nothing, and 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 so now like, there's no excuse for, for people to be uneducated with with the growing number of of health concerns with whether it's our food systems or, you know, the water we drink or the air we breathe or the buildings that we live in, um, the, the information's there. And so educating yourself about that and just trying to do some, some small part, uh, uh, to, to, to make, make a change, uh, within that. And, um, and then, you know, if, if, if it, if it makes sense, you know, the, to connect with a, with a, a local farmer to start sourcing, you know, uh, more aspects of your diet locally, uh, that would be a bonus. But the, 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 the absolute biggest thing is just get, get your hands in the dirt. Yeah. And, and so is there a way or a place that I guess people can connect with the f- local farmer? Is there a, is there a group? Is there an association that they can do that with, or they just kind of got to get the old yellow pages or the, you know, the phone, you know, you Google out. I mean, there's, there's uh, the nice thing about, you know, the internet now is that most of these farms uh, have their own, you know, social media pages. They've got, you know, websites. Uh, they, they're, you know, farmers markets, I think are, are, are still a really great place to, to go out and, and, uh, and meet, you know, regenerative farmers. Uh, you know, word of mouth is, is pretty good too. You know, if, if you, if you went to a farmer's market and you were to ask, you know, some of the vendors there, you know, Hey, do you have a really, do you have a good source for this or this or this, they'd be able to connect you with somebody else if you wanted that personal thing. But uh, you know, the, the, like I said, in, in here in, Al- in Alberta anyways, and like most places in, in North America, it's uh, it's really easy to just do a, a Google search and there are, you know, local directories and things like that. But I find they're, uh, they're, 
they're kind of a thing of the past. They were they were really popular years ago when when you know it wasn't quite as easy to, to for farmers to get themselves the internet. But you can you can literally create a website in you know half an hour now with zero experience, and and be up and running. So most people have them now. I've tried that. I could never get those to work after half an hour. So. <laughs> um, so I, I'm kind of so you know I guess the health of our our bodies and the function of our bodies. Is, is it in direct relationship to the health of the planet and, and, and farming in general? Do you think like, is that, you know, I mean, we, like you said, we're, you know, you can go to the local Canadian tire and you could probably buy enough roundup to cover the average, uh, you know, large farm. And, you know, people are spraying that an intensity that's probably more so than anything else, you know, any farmer would for an intensity of trying to kill a weed. So, you know, it's, it's always surprising to me that we have such a, a chemical load that, you know, the city dweller uses, let alone what the, you know, the, the rancher or the farmer uses. So um, always concerned about, you know, how that relates into the health of not only our bodies, but eventually the planet as well. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that, that our health and the health of our, our planet is, is linked. And, uh, you know, speaking of roundup, the, you know the, you know the the official you know estimates of, of the worldwide use of uh, Roundup or, or glyphosate is uh, at I think it's fourteen to fifteen billion kilograms per year, and and it's been doubling every few years. Uh, for they started using it in the the nineteen eighties or the nineteen nineties widespread, and it is the most popular herbicide in the world. Uh, and the the on the MSDS you know, safety sheet for Roundup, uh, a, a lethal dose for a lethal dose for an, for an adult human is uh, um, half a liter, half, half a kilogram. And yeah. so every year we're, we're applying, you know, enough Roundup to kill every human being on the planet two times over. And this is a substance that has a half-life of 25 years. And when it breaks down, it becomes more toxic uh, it is, it, you can look these patents up yourself. It, the Roundup or glyphosate was first patented as a chelating agent. So uh, basically meaning that it was used to descale industrial pipes uh, to pull minerals off of the sidewalls of the pipes and then flush them out the other side. Uh, and then people realized, hey, everything dies on the other end of these pipes. I wonder if it could be used as a herbicide. So then they, then they patented it as a herbicide. And then they started to realize, well, hey, it kills more than just plants. It also kills microbes. And so then it was patented as an antibiotic. And then it was also patented as a, as a, a, a biocide. So th there are currently four patents on this, this, this plant, this, this, this chemical. And, um, and we're literally spraying like, you know, 15 billion kilograms of a thing that is, that is trademarked as a thing that kills every living thing. So that's what a biocide is. And to think that this doesn't have some kind of an effect on, uh, and you know, obviously co correlation doesn't mean causation, but if you, there's a lot of really compelling research that's shown uh, correlation between, you know, our gastrointestinal diseases like, you know, celiac and gluten intolerance correlates perfectly with the introduction of Roundup being used on our cereal grains. Uh, there's also a likewise shift in the, uh, 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 intensity of cancer shifting from the industrial centers in the North America to the agricultural centers. And it actually mirrors the watersheds because glyphosate is uh, around, um, glyphosate is a water soluble 
chemical. And so the further you go down a watershed, the more prevalent the cancers are. And they actually, they, they concentrate. Uh, um, so our cancer maps have totally shifted. So that there, and that's just, this is just one, one chemical. And of course, you know, like any, you know, student who's ever gone through a chemistry class knows, you know, you can have a lab full of chemicals in glass jars and they're totally safe. You can take one of those glass jars and you can pour it on the table. It's totally fine. You start pouring three or four of those things together and you could burn down the whole school. And so, you know, we have, uh, what is it? It's like every few seconds, there's another herbicide or pesticide or biocide that's, that is invented that didn't exist before. And, you know, when you look at companies like Monsanto, this is the same company that created Agent Orange, that they created PCBs. They've created um, uh, dioxin. They created uh, aspartame. Uh, uh, they've created 2,4-D, which, which is, that was part of the, the, the um, ingredient in, in, um, in Agent Orange. Uh, and they've also created glyphosate. And every single one of those things, they, they said, oh, no, they're totally safe. We, 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 we did our own studies and we proved that it was safe. And every single one of those, and now Roundup is, or glyphosate is the, the latest chemical to be realized that it was, you know, worse than everything else. It's starting to kind of come home to roost. So, um, we have a, 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 an immense toxic load on our hands. And I, I personally think it affects every single one of us. I have my own health problems. Uh, and um, and I'm, I'm just like my, my mom, uh, I'm very sensitive to, to chemicals. Like when the neighbors spray, uh, I can feel like my, my, I can feel it in my body. Um, and, um, and so we, we have to clean up our environment. But the really exciting thing is, and I'll, I'll end on some on some positive notes because otherwise it's just you know why bother, is uh, you know th there there's also uh, fantastic research that shows that same glyphosate that under normal conditions would take 25 years for half you know for the half life of it, it can be bioremediated in a few days, if you have really healthy soil. Uh, you know, there, there are, you know, mushrooms that can clean up toxic oil spills. Uh, there are either mushrooms that can, that can bioaccumulate radiation. Uh, you know, th there, there is no doubt in my mind that we can fix all of these problems and, and we can, we can heal our environment and we can heal ourselves. But the, it's, it's, they both have to happen at the same time because you know if the humans are the cause of all these problems they're also the solution to them but if we are if we ourselves are sick we can't be you know as effective as stewards uh in our in our you know goal of of regenerating this planet and so um as for every step that we heal ourselves we're going to be better, better able to heal the environment and every step that the environment gets better we're going to improve health ourselves and it's going to we're going to, we can create an upward spiral that um, that turns this this whole ship around. Yeah, well, it takes great leadership like yourself and uh, innovative ideas, uh, people that are committed to that. Uh, you know, to try and move that, you know, uh, rope up a hill kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> you know, it's it it's uh, without it without people wanting to focus on that and and understanding and being aware of how chemicals affect them as individuals or uh, how they're used in the environment. Because I think, uh, you know, you know I, I know my 
grandparents and great grandparents, you know, they, they lived off the land. They, they grew their own food. They, you know, they weren't using pesticides and chemicals and, and uh, you know, so they lived a pretty good life. They lived well into their nineties and my great grandmother lived to 101 and came here on the, you know, on a, a, you know, horse and buggy type thing. And, and uh, you know, they lived a great life, um, you know, and, and a productive life. Um, and so I guess, is there, is there, What's the one thing you would tell the listeners um, so that they can lead a healthier life? What would you tell them? So kind of finishing on that, that uh, idea I just talked about is, is this, this, this idea that, that humans can be just as regenerative as we are destructive. So there's, you know, there's this, this uh, very pervasive um, myth or, or narrative uh, uh, within, you know, the kind of public space right now that humans are intrinsically bad or, or uh, incri- intrinsically evil or stupid or however you want to say it. And that, you know, the planet would just be better off if we went somewhere else. You know, David Attenborough is quoted as saying humans are a plague on the earth. You know, one of the world's greatest environmentalists is just, you know, sold us down the drain. And, <laughs> and so the, that for me is, um, it's true but if it's true, then the opposite is also true, which is that we can be just as regenerative as we are destructive. And so the, with, with this, this movement that is, is building right now, it, it's important to, um, to not you know, you know, chastise ourselves and, and uh, you know, get stuck in the mud. It, 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 we can take responsibility for you know any any uh any actions that we may have have you know helped to contribute to our current situation but we can do so much better than just being less bad you know we we can do more good we can remediate soils we can replenish aquifers we can bring back biodiversity uh we can uh you know heal you know uh, degenerative diseases in the body Uh, we can as you know you know we can build homes that aren't riddled with with toxins that uh you know use a fraction of the energy that are you know more beautiful it's it's um uh, versus the 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 kind of current goal that i see being set by you know the environmental movement which is it's very limited in scope and it's it's not aiming high enough it's just it's kind of more like i said how do we how do we do less bad versus how do we do more good and uh that's a, a very important distinction that uh, uh, I think needs to be made. Yeah. That's uh, like you said, we have to, we have to do more. We have to have people that want to do more and, and that, that will help us, uh, you know, regenerate our, our land and, and hopefully our health. Um, I took this as a Japanese proverb, but I changed it slightly. The best time to plant a garden is 20 years ago. Uh, the second best time is to start now. And yeah. so, so for, it's a little bit harder in, in uh, Northern Alberta to plant a garden at this time of year, but uh, <laughs> certainly we can start planning and, and uh, looking, you know, for that opportunity to uh, um, be ready for the spring and to, uh, uh, you know, to add our names to the hat in terms of helping improve the environment. So, so Dakota, yeah. So Dakota, thank you for joining me today. Uh, and explain how people can be uh, more focused on their food, uh, you know, how we grow our food, who grows our food, uh, and how, how it's important to our overall well-being. Um, 
sharing your experiences, uh, your family's uh, um, judgment and, and uh, leadership in this situation for regenerative farming. Uh, it can be more beneficial for the sustainability of, you know, of the farms, of the land uh, for the animals. So they only have kind of one bad day, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I've really enjoyed today's podcast. Um, you know, hopefully we have some listeners, uh, you know, they'll rate and comment on it and uh, we can have a discussion uh, on whatever platform you listened on, uh, connect with us on, on Instagram, uh, either through my build a healthier life and what's yours, uh, your guys, uh, do you have an Instagram? I am actually off social media now. The only, right. uh, the only platform I've got is, is my website and YouTube. And I, I have a podcast of my own, but, uh, so yeah, e- email is, is best for me. I, All right. I, <laughs> I had to, I had to step away from it. It was too much. Too much. There you go. Well, that's, that's good too. And, 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 uh, and more importantly, if you got something out of this podcast today as a listener, um, you know, please share it with your friends and family so they too can uh, build a healthier life. Uh, thanks again, Dakota. Appreciate your time. Anytime, Kevin. Take care. Thank you. Oops.